The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Tyler. We'll see you again soon. Welcome to The Exchange, everyone. A lot of news affecting your money today as the Fed heats up taper talk and traders pause to watch the unfolding events in Afghanistan. And that's where we begin this hour. Explosions and deaths at the airport in Kabul as the U.S. nears its deadline to get out. Let's go to Shepard Smith for the very latest at this hour. Shep? Kelly, that deadline very much in question now, the latest as we have it in just a moment. For now, the headline is at least three United States Marines were among those wounded in the explosion at the Kabul airport. We now know from the Pentagon there were two explosions, one there, as you see on the map, at the Abbey Gate, which is one of the main entrances to the compound, and nearby, a 1,000 meters or so away, at the Barron Hotel, a separate. Between those two is a drainage canal where we've seen video but are not airing it of casualties in that, in that canal. The scene is a gruesome and horrific one. We, it, we're led to, this is the canal where that has happened. This is video from a couple of days ago. Americans had been warned to get out of this area, but still we're told hundreds of Afghans were there still trying to get safe passage out of the country when these explosions happened in a coordinated way this morning around 9.45 Eastern time here in the United States. Uh, there were warnings. They're calling this a complex attack with at least one more explosion, as I mentioned, in that nearby hotel. Taliban sources are telling the, the NBC News that the attack killed at least 13 people, including some children. And sources at a Kabul hospital tell NBC News that as many as 60 people are at that hospital and injured. Just 14 hours before this attack happened, during the news last night, the United States Embassy in Kabul warned Americans to leave the airport immediately. At the time, we were told that there had been a continuous threat stream since uh, threat stream since Saturday of last week of actionable intelligence that ISIS-K, an offshoot of ISIS, was planning an attack on American forces around that gate. Well, now it's happened. Whether ISIS-K is responsible yet, we can't say with any degree of certitude. We're waiting for updates from the Pentagon. According to the Associated Press, the Taliban have now condemned this bombing, saying it happened in an area controlled by U.S. forces. The truth of the matter is the road that leads up to that, to that gate has concrete walls on either side. So if that's exactly where that explosion happened, it would have shot that explosion up. And if you remember, there were people on top of those walls in the days preceding. We don't have intelligence from this morning, but often there were people on top of those walls. So that would have had a really serious effect on anyone there. Uh, also, a bombing which appears to have been in that drainage canal, which was filled with sewage, where so many Afghans and Afghan children were. We do know children were among those injured. The United Kingdom has now issued notice to airlines to avoid flying below 25,000 feet over Afghanistan now after these attacks. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel says that they will try to help people seeking to leave Afghanistan even after August 31st. But everything is really up in the air now. When these explosions happened, the president and his close advisors were in the Situation Room, we're told, where he remained for much of the morning. We're told he's now in the Oval Office accepting briefings and trying to path, uh, 
to chart a way forward. You may remember that the president said, and I'm quoting now, if the United States forces are attacked, there will be a, quote, swift and forceful response. We expect to hear something from the Pentagon here in the upcoming moments. All of the events at the White House today have either been delayed or canceled. There was a meeting with the Israeli prime minister who's in Washington that has been at minimum delayed. There's also a COVID briefing, which we're told has been canceled. We have many questions now about U.S. troops and whether any other Americans who were in that area uh, were injured. Remember, it's the Taliban which now have control, and it's the Taliban with whom the United States has an agreement for security. Part of the agreement was, we'll be out of Kabul by August the 31st, evacuating all Americans and all of those Afghans who have either special visas or a reason to need to leave by August 31st, if security is guaranteed and if American safety moves forward to that date. All of that is up in the air now. When there's a Pentagon briefing, we'll bring it to you. When there's something from the White House, we'll have that as well. And a complete wrap-up and comprehensive coverage tonight on the news, 7 Eastern, CNBC. Kelly, back to you. Chef, this is a tricky issue because the Taliban is basically condemning the attack uh, which reportedly uh, was uh, ISIS-K was responsible for. They're saying it happened in an area controlled by U.S. forces, so sort of pointing the finger there. Will the U.S. and the Taliban be able to continue to sort of coordinate on this uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan with about five days left to go at this point. And as ISIS-K, as you've been reporting, had been diminishing in influence in Afghanistan, but has this new leader as of last June. There were apparently a lot of their troops were free during this chaos uh, out of jail. And they're able now to recruit based on this sort of blockbuster series of attacks. And yet they're mortal enemies with the Taliban because they think the Taliban's not hardline enough. So what kind of post-withdrawal situation is Afghanistan turning into? And how is the U.S. supposed to respond if, based on what we know about the casualties at this point, if some kind of response would seem to be warranted? Well, these, these are very good questions. On the first question, which is how do we coordinate with the Taliban, those talks have been ongoing and continuous, according to our sources at the White House, throughout this process. It's, it's been a, a very tenuous situation, this idea that the United States would rely on what is, without any question, a terrorist organization to provide security for our troops and our civilians who were trying to get out of there. Uh, that promise has been broken. The Taliban is condemning, but it's certainly in their DNA, this sort of thing is. And remember, the Taliban have been fighting with ISIS-K in the eastern part of Afghanistan for the, for the past three years. They are mortal enemies. And the goal of ISIS-K, according to the United States intelligence, throughout this process has been to upset this mission, this evacuation mission, to cause chaos in the middle of it, such that the relationship between the Taliban and the United States, such as it is, breaks down and this evacuation becomes impossible. As I mentioned, the president said, we will respond, that we will respond, the quote is, force, uh, swiftly and forcefully if United States troops are attacked. United States troops were just attacked. Right. What happens now? If the president holds true to his word, we have one situation where do they have to bring more people in? Do they have to get forward operating capacity as a result of this? Or does the United States continue to evacuate? We know that the ISIS-K and others have been able to recruit up to 30,000 fighters as a result of just our intention to withdraw. Where this goes from here is really anybody's guess. Yeah. Shep, we really appreciate it. We'll leave it there. Of course, look forward to hearing more as the reporting continues to come in on what's going on on the ground in Afghanistan. That's Shepard Smith. As he mentioned, there will be a lot more uh, tonight. But in the meantime, every hour, 
covering these events. As we turn back to markets now, we're also watching the Fed's much-awaited Jackson Hole Symposium. It's underway, and several Fed members have come out and made their hawkish stance pretty clear this morning. Bond yields climbing after Kansas City Fed President Esther George and St. Louis Fed President James Bullard took a less accommodative tone on Squawk Box earlier. Here's what they had to say. The guidance that the committees offered has pointed to watching for progress uh, in how the economy is unfolding, progress toward our objectives for employment and inflation. And I think my own uh, view on that is that we have made uh, substantial further progress and that we can begin to talk about uh, backing off of some of that accommodation. I think we want to uh, get going on taper, uh, get the taper finished by the end of the first quarter uh, next year, uh, and then we can evaluate what the situation is. We'll be able to see at that point whether inflation has uh, moderated, and, and in that case, we'll be in great shape. So why the rush to taper? Our mar- and why are markets taking it in stride? David Zervos joins me this afternoon with more. He is Jeffrey's chief market strategist. David, what's your read on this hawkish rhetoric? Well, I don't think there was much surprising with Jim or with Esther. You had two you know, noted hawks or, or, or folks who have been you know, pushing a rather aggressive stance. I think the market was eagerly awaiting Rob Kaplan's comments, especially after what happened last Friday, because he's actually been probably one of the most hawkish and, and a steadfast hawk at that for quite some time. And he seemed to waver on Friday and now he walked it back a little bit. So I think, um, you know, I think the market's probably a little bit confused by Rob and uh, you know, maybe we'll get some more clarification as time goes on. But uh, I, I imagine, uh, you know, right now the, the sort of steadfast hawkishness that we had believed was part of the, the Kaplan world may not be so steadfast. And even if he walks it back, people are still going to feel that he's not 100% there just yet, given what happened last Friday. So I think that's where the market is. That's why it's not taking it so badly, because all three of these presidents, really nothing new was was said. I mean, you kind of knew where they stood. What we're waiting for is is Jay tomorrow. And I, I think a little bit, you know, a little bit more clarity on the data, frankly. that's That's the most important thing. But I don't think you got a lot of new information on hawkishness today. If Kaplan was wavering at all, or if the Fed decides to kind of push this back a couple of months, would Delta be the reason? I think it's part of it. But, I, you know, I, I think we were also questioning how quick this recovery was going to be. And, and I think there were a number of people on the committee, even in the minutes, that said, hey, we might have to develop a contingency plan for, you know, delaying asset purchases for some time. Uh, so there were certainly doves on the committee, whether that's Jay or not, it probably is, whether it's Lil Brainerd, probably is, there may be a few others. Um, I, I think it's, you know, I, I think there's a pretty wide stratification on the committee as to, to how quickly you need to go. And even Rob said today, you know, he's not, he's not advocating what Jim was advocating, which is being done by the first quarter. He was talking about eight months or, or nine months of, of tapering. So I, I think the whole the whole thing is much more uh, nebulous at this stage. And a lot of it is the data. And frankly, Kelly, one thing, we had some pretty weak data so far in August. Hard for me to see a big August payroll print on, you know, on September 3rd, next Friday, when we had, you know, a fair amount of weak data in the last two or three weeks, whether it's the, the Empire, the Philly, uh, the retail sales, 
the core CPI came back down, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously the University of Michigan data, which we talked about the last time. I was on. Yeah, it seems like that payroll number is going to be the event of the next few weeks here. Do you buy this argument that seems to make the rounds every time they're tapering, that tapering is not tightening? And I don't know if they're making explicitly that case right now, but they seem to be in a hurry to say, well, the taper's not the same as raising interest rates, but do markets take it as they're both tightening of financial conditions? They're both the removal of accommodations. So in that sense, it's a tightening. I don't think there's any question about that, no matter how you want to slice it. So yes, it's a tightening. It's a removal of accommodation. This is an accommodative stance. And if you take some away, you've removed some of it. How the balance sheet interacts, this is the the really interesting part uh, is how are they going to market the balance sheet? Because the last time they reduced the balance sheet, they used these words autopilot and tried to just push it on the side. And that backfired spectacularly in 2018. And they had to kind of deal with the financial market repercussions from, from removing uh, the balance sheet or reducing the balance sheet too quickly. And I think autopilot will never be uttered again uh, in public by a federal reserve president or governor or uh, or, or, or chair or vice chair. I think of the, the, the process of balance sheet reduction slash tapering, if they even do reduce, let's just go to taper first. Um, I think it will be a, uh, a dynamic process, not a static process, not something that's announced and left uh, for dead. It's something that will, uh, will be revisited each meeting uh, yeah. and how big it is and how fast it is and how, how it goes will be, uh, will be debated each time. Let me ask you about just kind of the market outcomes. So you stay long the S&P 500 here. I know we've talked all year about the need to hedge that because of the confidence in uh, policymakers to get this right. We know we have a deluge of corporate bond issuance coming. A lot of people see this as kind of a, a whole daisy chain where they're issuing debt. They are buying back shares. There's tons of people participating <laughs> in this rally. Um, does this market outcome for you still point towards continued gains, continued rally, and trust in the Fed to kind of read the signals one way or the other and get this timing right from the bull's point of view? I I, I think so. I don't place a lot of stock in the views that were espoused today uh, by by Jim and Esther in terms of guiding the committee. I think they're on the fringe of the hawkish side. I think Rob made a little bit of a change. Whether he's backtracked or not uh, remains debatable, but I think um, you know, clearly he's not as hawkish as he was based on what happened last Friday. So um, I, I think you're going to see more tempered response from the central bank going into the end of the year. I think they're going to want to watch the data. You've got a lot of changes in the makeup of the central bank. Randy Quarles' job is up in October. Uh, Rich Clarida's job is up in January. Jay's job is up in February. It's a time for transition. It's a time where you could confuse the market. Um, I, I just don't see the reason to get too crazy. And as we've talked about before, Kelly, you know, we're missing six, you know, nearly 6 million jobs from where we were in February 2020. And real GDP has been flat for six quarters. We haven't grown since Q4 of 2019. What's the rush? What's the the rush, rush is only that you believe inflation is going to run rampantly above where you want it to. And the fact is, for a decade, it was running rampantly below where you wanted it to. And we've taken back about five years of those misses, but we still have a decade-long miss that is is pretty significant. And um, depending on what their window is on the look back for the average inflation targeting, they've got some room to play with here. 
I'm going to put that. That's your new hat is what's the rush. <laughs> Dave, thanks for joining me today to talk through all of these scenarios. Really appreciate it, uh, your point of view. David Zervos of Jeffries. Coming up after a quick break, we've laid out the Fed's taper talk. Now we'll get more strategies on how to play it. We're also going to look at some stocks you may want to avoid in this environment in the months ahead. Plus the back to school battle. Kids under age 12 can't be vaccinated. So states and local districts are trying to figure out how to test them so they can stay healthy and stay in school. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 18 minutes past the hour and breaking news now on CNBC. I'm Shepard Smith at Global Headquarters. This just in from the Pentagon. We can confirm that a number of U.S. service members were killed in today's complex attack on the Kabul airport. Quoting from John Kirby at the Pentagon now, a number of others are being treated for wounds. We also know that a number of Afghans fell victim to this heinous attack. He finishes, our thoughts and prayers go out to the loved ones and teammates of all those killed and injured. So as you might imagine, the situation in Kabul has just taken a new and devastating turn. American service members have been killed. We don't know how many in a in a coordinated attack that happened this morning just outside a gate there, at the Kabul airport and outside a hotel that's about a thousand meters away. Uh, that coordinated attack left many Afghans wounded and killed. NBC News has from sources inside the Taliban that as many as 13 people are dead and 60 are wounded. And now the Pentagon confirms U.S. service members among the group killed. The president had promised that any attacks on American forces would be met with swift retaliation. We haven't yet heard officially from the Pentagon on camera. We're expecting a briefing at some point. The president is said to be in the Oval Office getting briefings from his national security team and members of his cabinet. The entire situation in Afghanistan is now in flux. Updates as we get them from the CNBC newsroom. The exchange continues now. Kelly, back to you. Shep, thank you. Devastating news. Our Shepard Smith reporting. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get a quick check on the markets, which are moving to the downside. The Dow dropping 88 points this hour, about a quarter percent declines for all the major averages. And bond yields, which did rise earlier today on the hawkish Fed speak we were just discussing, uh, Every time we saw more news about the devastating attacks at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan have been coming in somewhat. There was an auction top of the hour. Rick Santelli gave it about a C grade as well. Here are some of the movers. Snowflake is jumping. It had quarterly revenues that more than doubled. The company raised its full year guidance for sales a second time. Stocks up 6%. Lordstown Motor soaring after finally announcing a new CEO two months after its former CEO resigned amid reports of inaccuracies. The new head of the company is the former CEO of Icon Enterprises. The shares are up 
up 16 percent. They're at 642. And Western Digital is among the worst performers in the S&P on reports that the company is in talks to merge with uh, Japan's Kioxia Holding. We reported that deal yesterday, remember. Uh, The deal could be valued at more than $20 billion. WTC was up about 10 percent yesterday. It's down 3.5 percent today. Coming up, we're asking, does everything work right now? People are still going out despite the Delta variant. But we'll look at the bullish sentiments surrounding the stay-at-home and reopening trades today. How can they both be rising in tandem? We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back, everybody. We've got more breaking news on the D.C. response to the explosions in Kabul and now reports of U.S. troop deaths. Eamon Javers has the story. Eamon? Kelly, this is the tragic news now from the spokesperson for the Pentagon. The Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby, just put out this tweet a few moments ago saying we can confirm that a number of U.S. service members were killed in today's complex attack at Kabul airport. A number of others are being treated for wounds. We also know that a number of Afghans fell victim to this heinous attack. So we wait for confirmation of the tragic news of the death of U.S. service members in Afghanistan defending uh, that security perimeter around the Kabul airport. Uh, presumably now this will change the security picture dramatically for the United States in Afghanistan. The president had su- suggested that if U.S. troops were attacked, the U.S. military would respond forcefully. The challenge now will be figuring out how to respond and who to respond against, given the swirling, chaotic situation surrounding the airport. Exactly how you use military force here uh, is going to be a question. Uh, Kelly, I can also tell you that I've been emailing with a former high-ranking U.S. military official who was in Afghanistan uh, who offered me some thoughts about the tactics of what needs to happen here in the minutes and hours to come. This uh, former U.S. military official just emailing me within the past couple of minutes to say uh, that it is just a known fact of counterinsurgency and security generally that when you have a large group like this uh, in a situation with an extremist group, that can be a target uh, for attackers. So uh, what this official says needs to be done in the coming days and hours, uh, given that you can't completely mitigate the risk in the limited time that the U.S. now has available in Afghanistan. Uh, He says the key is to push the perimeter out, require folks to go through metal detectors and dogs, use long serpentine corridors made of T-walls to limit the number that a suicide bomber can take out while folks are waiting to get into the metal detectors. But he says this will require a huge amount of effort resources and equipment. So a former high-ranking U.S. military official here telling me that sort of the best the United States can hope for in the limited amount of time going forward is to to limit the risk. But you're not going to be able to eliminate the risk altogether, even as we now just get this confirmation of U.S. military deaths in Kabul. 
No, absolutely. Uh, Eamon, we really appreciate it. Eamon Javers bringing us much more information there uh, this hour. Let's talk a little bit more as we turn our attention back to markets. Matthew Hornbach joins us. He's Morgan Stanley's global head of macro strategy. Matthew, it's good to have you here. And I think the question to ask with the situation like this is a little bit of the black swan question and also a question of the U.S. administration, whether its goals are domestic or international. What do you tell clients who are concerned about a destabilized world? Thanks, Kelly, for, for having me on. Um, well, first of all, my, my condolences to the families uh, who lost loved ones today. Um, I think that when it comes to the administration, um, you know, ultimately, their goal is both domestic and international. Um, and I think ultimately, when investors look at the situation, um, particularly with respect to the bond market, which is my specialty, you know, ultimately, their main focus is on how the Federal Reserve is going to change its policies mm-hmm. to address some of these uncertainties. And I think, you know, that a destabilized world, ultimately, um, if it ends up tightening financial conditions within the United States and, and more broadly, would have to adjust its policies in a more dovish fashion. It's not clear to me that a sad event such as this is going to, you know, force the Fed to change the momentum that it currently has in its monetary policy strategy. I think that remains the biggest question, uh, especially setting the tone for hearing from the Fed chief tomorrow. Is this just a moment where everybody pauses to wait and see what happens in the weeks ahead instead of pursuing a a tapering strategy or not? You know, we're not overly connecting the events of uh, Afghanistan to the markets today, but simply to point out the way that uh, people often think through them. So if you're telling people, especially from the bond markets point of view, Matt, about the taper, do you change your forecast? What is your forecast at this point? What do you think we're going to hear from the Fed chief tomorrow? Yeah, well, Kelly, we have the Treasury market underperforming into the end of the year. We think yields will rise. We have the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield ending the year at 1.8%. Uh, it was there earlier this year. We thought that was a bit too soon. But now we think the time is right for yields to start making their way higher again. The tapering is one of many factors that we think will drive Treasury yields higher. We also think that the economic data in the U.S. is going to play a key role. Of course, that also feeds into the Fed's desire to begin tapering its asset purchases. And that process will likely get underway uh, later this year, early next year and ultimately end up leading the Fed to raise interest rates. Yeah, so you're not overly excited about whether it happens, you know, in the near weeks or, or the far weeks. It's just kind of the general uh, chain of events as appropriate. Matt, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you standing by this hour. Matt Hornbach is, uh, as I said, global head of macro strategy at Morgan Stanley. We will have much more on the explosions in Kabul with Eurasia Group's Ian Bremmer right after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm joined now by Ian Bremmer. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group. Uh, Ian, we last spoke right after the events in Afghanistan started to take that tragic twist of the Taliban overtaking much of the land there. And when we spoke, you said the sort of the biggest thing at stake was the success of the U.S. withdrawal, including whether there were any American deaths. We unfortunately just learned about the deaths of four Marines, according to various uh, news reports. What does that mean for U.S. policy now? Oh, it's a big deal. Uh, I mean, these are the first American servicemen to have been killed in Afghanistan since February in 2020. Um, Clearly, those that are seeing the evacuation as a failure on the Biden administration, both in the United States as political opponents, but also internationally, are going to be leaning into that. Um, It is obviously harder 
for the United States to continue evacuations, even up until August 31, given how much the security situation uh, around uh, Afghan, about Kabul airport has deteriorated. Um, it's also uh, going to be difficult for the Biden administration not to engage in some kind of direct military retaliation against terrorist targets on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, clearly, uh, even though there's no reason to believe that the Taliban was in any way involved in this, but in order to have this attack, they went through Taliban checkpoints. And so uh, the level of mistrust between the U.S. and the Taliban government is only going to grow. Um, the U.S. freezing of the assets is going to be very hard to get that undone, hard for the Taliban to effectively govern and control their country. I mean, all of this is just enormously, um, it's, it's enormously tragic. Uh, and, and, of course, the biggest thing uh, is the tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Afghans who have, uh, Afghan citizens, who uh, have been cleared for evacuation that will not be able to get out, in part because it's too dangerous for them to approach the airport, their security can't be guaranteed, and in part because the Americans are going to be wrapping up uh, these activities in short order. Right. So how do these activities continue, Ian? I'm not sure what the status is of how many Americans. I know obviously there's a huge amount of concern about those who were helping the Americans and whether they're all trapped now. You know, if those at the airport are are sitting ducks, then ISIS-K has made it clear that they're able to launch these attacks. Well, I think it's very important that the White House had been warning uh, the Americans of imminent attacks being likely. Um, even in the hours before this attack occurred, uh, you had the State Department saying all Americans should leave immediately from the airport. Don't make your way there because we have credible knowledge of attacks. So, I mean, what I think the Biden administration is going to do is they'll say uh, they'll, they'll lean on the talking points that they've been warning Americans that they should get out for uh, weeks now, um, that most of the Americans um, that want to get out are out. Um, and uh, and that those that remain are people that have decided for whatever reason they want to remain. I mean, look at any circumstance. Number one, there are going to be Americans that no matter what you do are going to choose to stay. And number two, there are going to be Americans in any circumstance that have tried to get out and will fail and will hear about that. And Biden's going to focus overwhelmingly on the former. And uh, I think the question is, how much is the latter a story? How much do we hear about it? So far, we haven't heard directly on the media from a lot of Americans in Afghanistan that are saying, I want to get out, you got to protect me. That's overwhelmingly been Afghan nationals. If that narrative starts to shift in a meaningful way after these attacks, Biden has another very significant problem to account for. What are the implications of the strengthening of ISIS-K after these attacks? Uh, this is a group which the U.N. in June said was down to 1,500 or maybe 2,000 fighters in Afghanistan. They had launched some big attacks in Kabul, I believe one that killed a number of schoolgirls earlier this year. They think the Taliban isn't hardline enough. Uh, one analyst told The New York Times Afghanistan is becoming Las Vegas for terrorists. Uh, and, and the same U.N. report said eight to 10,000 fighters from all over the region have been pouring in, um, most associated with the Taliban or with al-Qaeda. So we have groups that, you know, are in some ways overlapping, but in many other ways are, you know, at each other's throats. What are the implications of that, especially the rise of ISIS-K in the region? Well, Kabul International Airport today is the most attractive target for Islamic extremist terrorists out there. Um, you've got, you know, the Americans bunkered down 
Um, you have no ability to maintain security outside of the airport gates itself. Um, and you have an environment in Afghanistan that's basically a power vacuum. So absolutely, uh, I mean, if, you know, even if you didn't have intelligence on the ground, you would think that this would be a very dangerous time. And it's hard to imagine that what we saw today is the end. Uh, that, in other words, yes, other suicide attacks almost certainly are, we're going to see more of them. It makes me worry a lot more about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, both in Afghanistan itself as well as internationally. This is going to be a big problem uh, for the Biden administration and for, you know, American nationals abroad in areas where uh, terrorists are in operation. I'm sure you're going to end up seeing significant warnings coming from the State Department for Americans in such countries uh, over the coming couple of weeks. But, you know, that's, that's very different from saying that ISIS-K and other such terrorist organizations suddenly have gotten much stronger and pose a credible threat to the American homeland. Right. I don't think that's the case at all. This is the, the, the collapse of Afghanistan and the taking over of the Taliban is a much more credible security threat to countries in the region and more broadly to the Turks, to the Europeans, than it is to the United States. Here in the U.S., the principal terrorist threat domestically is actually white supremacy. It's, it's not Islamic extremism. Well, I guess a different way to ask the question would be if these groups are busy fighting each other for control and power in Afghanistan, would that be a distraction from launching uh, attacks against the West or would attacks against the West uh, be one way in which they're jockeying for internal influence and power? Uh, well, again, with the United States right now uh, leaving in disarray uh, after 20 years of fighting, having failed uh, in, in the, the broader mission of creating stability and standing up something that looked more representative and democratic in Afghanistan, there's a power vacuum and the Americans are there. They're in the airport on the ground right now. And yet outside of that airport is a very permissive environment. Let's keep in mind right now, the spokesperson for the Taliban has publicly posted, well, the, the suicide bomber, that, that, that occurred in territory the Americans were in control over. Right. Well, I, what, what they didn't say is, actually, that was right after they went through Taliban checkpoints. Mm-hmm. So it is clearly, this is an enormously permissive environment for those that want to target Americans and gain the prestige um, and the ability to gain followers and the rest that comes with that. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there's more than one organization that takes credit for these attacks today for precisely that reason. So, again, I think in the run-up to August 31st, in the run-up to the 20th anniversary of September 11th, I think there's a lot more of this. Ian, thank you for joining us today. Ian Bremmer with the Eurasia Group. We will keep following this story and the market impact. Uh, The exchange is back after a short break. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's down 68 points uh, right now. It's well off the lows when it was down more than 100 this morning. So about two-tenths percent declines for all the major averages. Quick look at the 10-year yield as well, by the way. does show yield sliding towards the lows of the session off their morning highs. So we have these two risk classes kind of going in different directions. Let's bring in Michael Yoshikami uh, to discuss this more. He's founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. And Dagus Wright is with us as well. He is CEO of Decatur Capital Management and a CNBC contributor. It's great to have you both here. Degas, let me just start with you. Uh, thoughts on the 10-year on markets today. I don't want to overly tie this price action to what's going on in Afghanistan. I mean, that's a majorly difficult global issue. I, 
where we have to just wait and see how, how it will be resolved, what the Biden administration is likely to say. And I guess in the meantime, that leaves us looking to Jackson Hole and the events uh, and the likelihood to hear from Powell in the morning. Yes, Kelly, first of all, my prayers are with our servicemen and women and their families. Uh, what we're seeing is that uh, with the overall market, we're seeing the bumpiness uh, and the market may have pulled back given the news of what happened in Afghanistan. And so, but if you notice, the market is actually up a little bit from the market lows today. So that means that the unfortunate, the terrible thing that happened in Afghanistan is not having a significant impact on our markets. So we're seeing that this is still going to be a bumpy market. We've had a bumpy several weeks here. And so this is just a continuation of that volatility. Yeah. And it, there's this push and pull between stay at home and reopening stocks. You know, we've all been looking at that. Uh, Michael Yoshikami. I also thought that Dave Zervos made an interesting point a little while ago about the importance of the jobs report. September 3rd, we get the August number that maybe that's the best way for now to tell whether, you know, the demand side of the economy is losing momentum or not. Yeah, it's going to be all about jobs. And then the jobs report is going to impact what the Federal Reserve um, is doing. Uh, the news coming out of Jackson Hole, I'm sure, will be uh, continuing about reducing the tapering or reducing the uh, uh, buybacks and, and tapering out um, some of the intervention that the Fed has had in the market. So um, I think really it all comes down to inflation. What the Fed is going to do and the jobs are a key a key factor in that equation. Degas, let me use a couple of the names today to illustrate this this push and pull in the market. So you have, you know, Zoom, the big classic stay-at-home trade, getting a big upgrade to outperform, a $400 price target at Morgan Stanley. Williams-Sonoma has these amazing earnings. You know, it's bringing back, it's, again, kind of a stay-at-home play there. But Ulta, also strong earnings beat, right? So, and this has been happening for the last few weeks now, where it's not a clear sort of sell the pandemic winners by the reopening trade. It, for a while, it seems as almost as if they're both working. Yeah, Kelly, the reason why they're both working, if you go out to a store, to a sporting event, uh, to a restaurant, those venues are still packed with individuals. Consumers are still spending. So the Delta variant may impact travel and leisure, but when you look at restaurants, retail, uh, such as Ulta, you're seeing people within the stores. And so there may be a slight pullback due to the Delta variant, but we don't feel that this is going to stop. We definitely don't see that we're going to close down the economy again. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing Zoom is going to continue because there's still a need for video conferencing. Uh, but we're also seeing William Sonova that's being driven by the millennials and uh, they're going to Pottery Barn to buy uh, housewares. So everything is still is still working. Yeah, and, and those housewares are more expensive than ever, Michael Yoshikami, and we have a lot of focus on prices, whether inflation is going to be persistent, uh, sort of persistently rising, let's put it that way, or not. You know, how much worse are these supply chain issues going to get now that Delta has been spreading again? Uh, and what, what that all means for corporate profit margins? Yeah, all, all those are, are very good questions. I think, I think though, um, Kelly, uh, there's still lots of money in the economy and consumers are, uh, believe it or not, uh, despite some of the sentiment readings, I think consumers are optimistic that when we have a uh, third vaccine dose, um, a booster shot, uh, that you're not going to see the economy closing down. Even what's happening in Hawaii, I mean, the governor's trying to convince people not to come to Hawaii, hmm. but has not completely shut down the economy. And so I think that um, consumers are more optimistic that we're not going back to where we were maybe a year ago. It's going to be ugly until we have children's vaccines, probably. 
Uh, but I think there's still some optimism. And I think that's why spending is still occurring. Maybe first you, Michael, then to Degas, what would your top picks be either stocks, you know, sectors like for in, in individuals, for investors right now, even as we're about to move through some major events with the taper and everything else going on? Yeah, I, th- I think you bet on the consumer. I think that it's not a fluke. I think you have companies that um, um, are going to have um, um, really a strong continued footprint. Um, these are going to be companies like um, Apple, certainly, is a consumer stock, even though people think it's a technology stock. Uh, companies like Amazon is going to continue to thrive. Costco is going to continue to thrive. Every person needs to make a judgment what's best for them. But I think you want to bet on the consumer being economical, being selective in what they spend their money on, but they're going to spend their money. Degas? I I, uh, agree with that. Want to look at Home Depot. Uh, Even the beauty care, which would be Estee Lauder, that's really focused on their online uh, operations. So anything that has the consumer as the driver is where you want to put your your investments in now. Degas, would you be waiting for pullbacks? I mean, that's always a classic question, especially you talk about names like Home Depot or others. You know, are these stocks that people should go, you know what, maybe there will be a taper tantrum. Plenty of people have come on this air and said so 10, 15 percent, maybe less. But at the same time, every pullback, we've seen to see a rush of buying activity. The market gets 20 percent away from you again. Well, Kelly, what we would recommend to our clients is that buy a good name and hold it. So the pullbacks we're seeing now, they're not going to really make a difference a year from today. So that's what you really want to focus on. You want to focus on the valuation, the companies that are profitable and companies that have earnings, expected earnings to grow. That's what you want to focus on in this market. And don't really get caught up in the day-to-day movement of the markets. Michael? Yeah, yeah, Kelly, I wanted to make a comment. When you say a pullback, uh, people oftentimes think about a pullback, which is the S&P and the Dow. S&P and Dow are really populated by 10 or 15 names that really drive the, uh, drive the so-called market. When you look at a 10 or 15 percent drawdown, there are individual names, for example, individual sectors, for example, that are down 10 percent. You don't have to wait for the S&P to go down. Look at individual positions because there's opportunity. On that note, Michael, we're about to talk to Brandon Ahern of Crane Shares. Would you be buying China yet, given this big turnaround we've had this past week? No, I would not be buying China yet. They're not done. Uh, I talk to people in China every single day. Believe me, there's more going on in China than the United States even knows right now that even impacts the Chinese population. So I would be very, very cautious on China right now until... Uh, they get done really cleaning house. Oh, we'll have to bring you back, maybe expand that thought uh, a little bit. Guys, thank you both this afternoon. Michael Yoshikami, Degas Wright, uh, talking us through these markets. What a day. We appreciate it very, very much. We'll have much more on the markets and overseas investing, as I hinted, coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a wild ride for shares of the Chinese Internet stocks following a crackdown by the country's government over the past several weeks. The drop so steep it prompted some investors to start going bottom fishing and take a look at the rebounds we've seen. DD shares soaring nearly 20 percent in the past week. JD.com, the Chinese e-commerce provider, up almost 23 percent over the past week. Tencent up 12 percent in the past five days. So what are investors betting on? Joining us to discuss is Brendan Ahern. He's the CIO of Crane Shares. Brendan, welcome. I don't know if you heard Michael Yoshikami's warning a moment ago, but he thinks there's still a lot more to come in terms of China's crackdown. What's your response to that and and your read of the situation there? Well, we have a singular focus on China. So on a daily basis, we're focused on providing investors with what's happening there. I can't comment on the past speaker, but this morning, one would have noticed that a company called YY is actually taking itself private. 
The company has as much cash as the market cap of the company. So, so the executives of the company are saying, if investors aren't going to buy us, we're actually going to take our company private. And I'm sure it'll simply relist itself in Hong Kong. We're also seeing a number of green shoots around clarity and transparency on regulation. Uh, most importantly, the data security law, the critical infor- information and infrastructure regulation will go into fe- effect on September 1st, Kelly. That means there is a finish line. And I think that's that's been a key problem is the uncertainty around regulation. Talk to me about KWeb, which is now kind of the hallmark banner China ETF, if you want to call it that. Um, how do you decide who's in, who's out for how long? Well, we, we, we are. It, it is a passive ETF, so it is market cap weighted. We were very hands on in the construction of the index over eight years ago to get very specific exposure to Chinese companies that generate revenue online. Uh, and lo and behold, eight years later, it's become the largest China ETF here in the United States. And I certainly am a huge believer as a shareholder myself in KWeb. And I think that you know this real uncertainty has weighed on the price action, but we're starting to see a bottoming process. Bottoming process. We're showing the year-to-date performance. We're still down big, you know, anywhere from 12% down to JD, 39% down uh, for DD. So will there be any reshuffling of the names in here? Obviously, very specific to Chinese e-commerce, but any reshuffling based on what the Chinese regulators have told you or told the public about its further efforts to regulate data, privacy, and so forth, or any... in increasingly active efforts to get ahead of potential further moves that could negatively affect these shares? Well, one, our index provider did not include Didi due to that company having gone public uh, very clearly when it shouldn't have. So so Didi is not part of KWeb. I think something that we've informed the index provider about the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act As a fiduciary, we have a responsibility to protect our clients' assets. And if we see a strict enforcement of the HFCAA, um, we will push for a conversion out of the U.S. names into the Hong Kong names, Kelly. Uh, That's very easy to do. You just simply tell your custodian at the end of the day and you you wake up tomorrow and you own own the Hong Kong share classes. At the same time, it's very important investors to recognize on Friday, the CSRC, China's SEC said, please, to the U.S. regulars, we want to solve this issue. Very publicly outreach. On Monday, the state council, a very important body within Chinese government, also reiterated that call that the U.S. and China regulators work together to solve this long-running PCOB audit issue. It very much sounds like China wants to solve the issue. We certainly hope U.S. regulators are engaging them to solve this issue, put it to bed, and not put $2 trillion of U.S. savers' wealth at risk. Very interesting. And again, uh, the extent to which Hong Kong becomes sort of a a way to play this for the the near term for some Mm -hmm. of these companies. Brendan, thanks for your time today. Brendan Ahern is the CIO of Crane Shares. Well, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.